a transitional period, a transitional message between the first three chapters and then chapter four, but we will get to chapter four. Let me go ahead and pray for God's guidance. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and its truth and its light. And this book has been a mystery to so many people. Help us, help us to see it with your wisdom, with your guidance, and with your help. Reveal to our hearts your call upon our lives. Help us come to love you more deeply. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You cannot tiptoe through the book of Revelation. It's a very deep study. It's a very important study. But you have to address the points that it addresses. Grip it with both hands. And there's some things here that we have been looking at the past few weeks that need some emphasis before we go any further. If you remember how John began telling us what happened in the book of Revelation, the very first verse. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day when suddenly I heard a loud voice like a trumpet. And I've got to tell you, if you haven't noticed already, the whole book is as loud as a trumpet blast exposing the sins and inadequacy of all men compared to the glorious holiness, purity, and sufficiency of God in Christ. Comparing man's failure to his glory and perfection is something the book does very well. Most Christians don't seem to be influenced too much by the first three chapters. They introduce the book, and then they give us some letters written to seven different churches. And we've looked at those churches to the church at Ephesians, they were commended because they hated the Nicolaitans, but they had lost their first love. They had grown kind of cold and distracted about their faith. To the church at Smyrna, there was not much to criticize about them, just an encouragement to stand firm. The church at Pergamon, they were commended for holding fast, but they were warned that some apostasy and even immorality had crept into their congregation. The church at Thyatira, they were rebuked because they had tolerated a false prophetess that John called Jezebel. Again, suggesting that there was some immorality present in the congregation. The church at Sardis was rebuked because many had become lethargic or apathetic and they had fallen into a spiritual slumber. And that's something you'd never want to do. When standing before the Lord. You might get away with a snooze during a sermon, but don't do it before the Lord. The church at Philadelphia was commended for being faithful under trial, and they were offered an open door. The church at Laodicea was probably the worst. God said that their lukewarm faith, their passionless faith, their cold Christianity made him sick. Many people read and study these 
books, these first three chapters of Revelation, and they move through them hurriedly. Oh, yeah, there's some lessons for the church there. Let's, let's not spend too much time there. Let's, I want to get into the place that talk about dragons and scorpions and horsemen riding through the sky. I want to hear about the great battle. I want to know when Jesus comes back. We must not do that. We must look at everything in Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. That's how John begins the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 24 are different. There are some similarities. There's a lot of sevens used in both of them, but they are different. The first three chapters are dealing with earthly messages, and the final chapters of Revelation are dealing with spiritual visions and spiritual warfare. So there is a difference And when John says or writes about the first three chapters, things that must soon take place, I'm going to suggest something, and you're free to disagree, but be very careful if you do. That since there are differences between the first three chapters and the last 17 chapters or 18 chapters, He's talking about things that must take place now and things that will take place later on. What is necessary? What must take place? If you noticed in your bulletin, right underneath the banner inside, I always have this little phrase, this little, I put some, try and put something up different every few weeks. Prepare to worship. And this morning it reads, we often hear life is short. Better enjoy it. We never hear eternity is long. Better prepare for it. We love that part about life being short. We use that as an excuse to indulge in things that we would not usually spend our money on or spend our time on. But the way of the master, the way of the Lord, is to prepare for eternity. Revelation 1 through 3 reveals letters to seven churches, and they all call for them to remember, repent, and recover. And if we apply those lessons to us during this day, it's the same kind of an idea. Remember, repent, and recover. There are letters to seven churches, but they are often heavily discounted by us and by others who study. Little heed is given to the call to repentance. His word is for us. He calls us to follow. He is molding us into his own image. And we've got to remember that. When the apostle Peter wrote his epistle, the first epistle, 
He wrote, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced for you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Apostle Peter said that the Old Testament prophets who wrote about the coming Christ asked, inquired the Lord through prayer, through fasting, when will he appear? They didn't even see the fulfillment of the prophecy. They were writing for our benefit that we may know the Christ who redeems us, that we might know the Savior. And Peter says these things are so wonderful that even angels love to study them. What do we love to do? The Apostle Paul also wrote in Philippians 3, I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Again, the Apostle John in his first epistle wrote, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You and I who believe Christ is our Lord and Savior have that promise. And we must follow we must practice the discipline of repentance in our life, constantly checking ourselves in order that we may be faithful to him, in order that we might be devoted to him and to love him with passion. Where the seven churches of Revelation failed, we have an admonition by their example. Do right. Why is repentance and faithfulness necessary? Because heaven is so much more than eternal life. I don't think that we study enough of it. What is heaven to you? What is your idea of heaven? Do you think that everybody gets wings and a harp? We just become angels? Is that what you think? Do we get to sit on cotton candy clouds and watch unicorns chase one another around rainbows? Is that your idea of heaven? That's kind of a childish fantasy. That's not what heaven is. The Apostle Paul said, No eye has seen and no ear has heard. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Whatever heaven is, it is beyond our imagination. And it is eternal. It is forever. Some people think, well, heaven is, I get to go fishing all the time because that's what you like to do here on earth. I'm not saying there won't be 
fishing in heaven, but I'm saying that's not going to be your occupation or your preoccupation in heaven. Hank Williams Jr. years ago recorded a song, If Heaven Ain't a Lot Like Dixie, I Don't Want to Go. Well, guess what? Heaven won't be a lot like Dixie. It'll be a lot better. Revelation 4, we get a very clear description of heaven in the throne room, at least the part that John reveals to us through his vision, the throne room of heaven. In Isaiah 6, that same throne room is described. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for, the, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah gave a vision of the throne room of heaven. He had seen the Lord himself, and he was terrified, fearful. We can read a very similar description of Ezekiel 1, but it's not God's throne room. It is God's war chariot coming to earth in order to chastise the sins of Israel. In much of the same language is used. And Ezekiel was terrified and trembled. Now you and I look forward to heaven, don't we? It's anticipated beauty, eternal rest, peace. Why should you expect such a blessing? What entitles you to that kind of rest, that kind of relief? Do you have any right to it? Not one of us thinks of God as a terrible danger, do we? The saints of old, the honored prophets that wrote the Bible, trembled in his presence. I've got to tell you, most of the Christian churches I've seen give him very little more than a yawn. No one fears his presence. No one reverences his name. Very few sinners are ashamed of what they know that God sees. That's why at nearly all of the seven churches, John wrote the, the, John was told, write, I know your works. I know your trials. 
I know your sufferings. I know your works. God knows you. And some of you might be encouraged. Oh, God knows me and he loves me. Well, stop. God knows your secrets. That's why he calls us to repent. Even those secrets that we cling to, that we hang on to, don't belong in our life of faith. But very few care. What's, gone, what's God going to do? As Peter wrote in his second letter, he said, Where is the promise of his coming? Wherever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. That's pretty much how we walk our life. Well, God will hear my prayers, maybe. I'll get by. That'll be okay. That's sufficient. That's enough. We who believe in Christ should understand that God is worthy of our fear, of our fear and our reverence. Why should you expect any promise of eternal life? Do you have any right to it? I don't have any right to it. In and of myself, I have no right to eternal life. I don't deserve it. I'm a sinner. But in John 1, 11 through 13, he came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, as many as have received Christ Jesus, to them he gave the right, the authority, to become children of God. There's your claim to heaven if you trust him by faith. It is only in Christ. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. It is a spiritual birth. If we trust in Christ as our Savior, we trust by faith. And even that gift of faith signifies new birth, new life in Christ. just a moment I'll be in chapter 4 we'll just begin there we'll be into the text that we're supposed to be into that this is transition but if you look back in chapter 3 near the end of the church at Laodicea verse 20 John wrote behold these are the words of the Lord John was told to write, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Some of you may have heard this verse before, and some of you may have used this verse in evangelism in trying to win someone to the Lord. This is not a verse that should be used for evangelism. That might surprise you. This is another gracious call by the Lord to repent. 
A lot of people think that Jesus is sweet and meek and mild, waiting for on you to make a decision to open the door to let him into your heart. This is the glorious Lord calling his church to repentance. We just said written seven letters to seven different churches, calling them into obedience. And he's saying, you keep shutting me out with your pride, with your arrogance, with your clinging to sin. I will withdraw my spirit and my presence. I will not bless your conduct. I know this is kind of a heavy message for a homecoming day but it needs to be said God does not bless the sinful life and the only way to get God's blessing is to repent allow Christ to influence your life let him come in and he will bless you the church the churches in Revelation 1 through 3 had closed the doors to the presence of the Lord. They had preferred sin over repentance. God said, I will not bless your life if you do not repent. The closed door describes the unrepentant church. It does not describe the lost soul. Now watch carefully. Let's get into chapter 4. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Man's heart closed to the Lord because he's sin, sinful and rebellious and unrepentant. God says, here's my open door. Come in. At first, at the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. You remember the first time he heard the voice of a trumpet? The voice sounded like a trumpet. It was the Lord Jesus himself. Now the Lord Jesus is calling him into the presence of his own glory in the courts of heaven. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven and one with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Do remember that in 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote, reminding his disciple, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, we also will also deny, he will also deny us. Some of you may have been wondering, well, when do we get to reign with the Lord? In a sense, we already are. We have representatives in heaven who have authority, who are before the throne, who are in his presence, saints of old who have gone on before us. And we are here in this world with a call to charge, go into the world and preach the gospel. Some of you history buffs and some of you who have lived long enough remember at the end of World War II, General Douglas MacArthur was given the task of reconstruction or rehabilitation of Japan. 
Hiroshima and Nagasaki had been utterly destroyed by atomic weapons. The nation was crippled because of war. The nation was broke because of war. And led by General MacArthur and the U.S. and Allied forces, the nation was occupied while it rebuilt, while our country poured resources into the land in order to rebuild and reconstruct. U.S. forces, along with Allied support, ruled the land during Reconstruction. They were soldiers in the streets that provided police force, provided law and order. It kind of illustrates what we are supposed to do as Christians. We have God's authority, which is an eternal word, an eternal light, an eternal truth, and we've abdicated that authority. We no longer preach truth. We are more at peace with, or more at ease with making people feel good about themselves, supporting their self-esteem. God calls us to preach the truth. We rule and reign by the word we preach and teach and follow. Let the Spirit of God do it. Let us be faithful to his word. The Bible says that around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. He is talking about a representative government from the courts of heaven over all of his creation. All of his creation. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pearls of and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God so the holy spirit is present and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature like the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Four living creatures represented he is Lord over all creation, over all things, over all living things, over everything that he has made. And the four living creatures, each of them had, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. If you remember reading Isaiah 6 just a few moments ago, if you remember that. In God's courtroom, thunder shook the thresholds. When we worship the Lord or when we come to worship him on Sundays, does anything shake at all? I know the thresholds aren't supposed to. We shouldn't expect that. But does your heart shake at all? Are you moved at all by 
just because you're coming into his presence together with the other saints of God. When we come to worship on Sunday, does anything shake? Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him saying, worthy are you. O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's the purpose for the church. We are to come and worship the Lord. We are to give him honor and glory on Sundays. That is why we belong to him. He has redeemed us. He has cleansed us. He has made us his very own, and he continues to mold us and make us into his image. And we should come every week to give him praise, to honor his name, to worship and adore him. I've said much about the terrible and holy Lord. Terrible, using that word in a good name, not a frightening name or a bad name. But when you... Nuclear power, speaking as an earthly illustration, nuclear power is wonderful. But it can also be terrible. God's holiness and righteousness and purity, God's power and might is wonderful. But in the same sense, it can be very terrible. He should be someone who is feared in a reverential sort of way. You want to be very careful in his presence. But he is also merciful. The 145th Psalm, King David wrote, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless your name. 
while we understand him as someone who is powerful and majestic and awesome, we also see him as someone who is gracious and merciful. And we do not wish to take advantage of that in a very unwise way. We don't come to church on Sunday yawning, ho-hum, we come with our hearts engaged that we might give him praise and adoration that he truly deserves. We don't try and worship him or use the excuse to, work. oh, I can worship him from a deer stand or on the bow of a bass boat or out on the golf course. No. That dog won't hunt. That kite won't fly. We are called as a body, as a congregation, as a church, to worship him together. To each of the seven churches, remember God admonished them all and called them to repentance. And this is his gracious promise. Seven promises to each one of them. Seven promises that we may partake of. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Eternal life is what we are promised. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What's that about? Some of you may have heard the term, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. What that is talking about is our earthly birth coming into this world through a mommy and daddy. We're born sinners. If we do not receive Christ as our Savior during our lifetime, we come to the end of our days, there's a funeral, and we're gone. But our soul is eternally bound to one place or another. That second death is the final judgment where Christ dooms those who are lost to eternal fires. But if we are born into this world as a sinner and we come to a saving knowledge of Christ sometime during our lifetime and receive him as our savior, come to the end of our days and there's a funeral, we no longer have to worry about the judgment, the second death. That's what it's talking about here. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Earthly life will come to an end. We have eternal life in Christ Jesus. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You know how the Lord told John to write to the churches, I know your works. In Christ Jesus, God says, I know you. You continue to live following me. You continue to conquer in this life by being faithful to me you will have a name that describes 
who you are, and it will be a name of honor, a name of righteousness, a name that is eternal. To the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and with earthen pots, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him or her the morning star. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Do you ever think, never do think about this, at least I haven't, but there's going to come a day to those who are faithful, the Lord is going to boast before his father about that faithful servant, that faithful child, that wonderful daughter, that one who stood firm. These are the promises of a gracious Lord who is terrible and frightening and glorious and majestic. And yet he is merciful and kind and patient. And all he asks of us, repent and believe. Follow me. Even to the church at Laodicea. The church that was so weak, so cold that God... You've read it. You've heard it preached. I will, old King James, I will spew you out of my mouth. I will vomit. He has even made a gracious promise to them. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. God is gracious and God is good. We must remember that and we must not forget. We must measure our own hearts and our own attitudes when we come to church. You don't come here for a show. You come here to give to him. Your praise, your honor, your glory, your worth, your, your love. And at the same time, you receive nourishment from the word. You receive encouragement from brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's kind of an, a symbiotic sort of orchestra that goes on here. God is our audience. We don't come for a show. If church bores you, if you get nothing out of it, then your engine block is out of spiritual oil. You need to do something about it. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and its truth and its power and its light. We ask that, Lord, that as we look at these words in this book, that we may be challenged and helped and encouraged. We pray this day, as we encourage one another and share memories around a meal, that our hearts might be lifted, that we might praise the Lord together. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue